you unlock this door with the key of imagination, beyond it is another dimension, a dimension of sound, a dimension of sight, a dimension of mind. You're moving into a land of both shadow and substance, of things and ideas. You've just crossed over into the Twilight Zone. The House of Scream Style! <laughs> This is Candy, the final girl, Allison, and you have just stepped into the Twilight Zone here on the house that screams on our very first special edition episode. Very, very excited about this. Um, I did a Twitter poll just to be sure, because there's a lot of controversy on whether the Twilight Zone is horror or not. But over 200 people voted and it was a resounding yes, it is horror. So we're going to go with that. Um, my guests tonight include Daniel Nightmare Nerd Ryan. Submitted for your approval. A quartet of Twilight Zone Masterpiece. Well, that's great. Uh, Sean of the Dead Smith. God damn it, Bobby. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Rob the Cinema Drunkie Antiquera. How do you do? And Dave German. Uh, thrilled to be here as always. It's going to be a fun one. We need to find a catchy nickname for you. Yeah, <laughs> you, you need one. <laughs> my, ex-wi- my ex-wives have a couple they could give you. Ah! Well. <laughs> my exes probably have some for me, too. I just try to block it out. It's in another dimension. Dimension of, <laughs> dimension of sound. Dimension nice of mind. But uh, mm. we're going to let Sean of the Dead start us out tonight. We are doing three picks. These are not necessarily our favorites. There are too many for that. Um, but we, we chose three in particular to speak about. And Sean, go ahead. All right. Well, I want to give a disclaimer um, beforehand that for anybody listening um, that hasn't watched Twilight Zone and intends to, um, you might want to not listen to this because you're probably going to get hit with spoilers. Um, and I'd hate to have some of the twists ruined. Yeah, the, the, the Twilight Zone is all about twists. Yeah, because like you said earlier, I was not well versed in, in Twilight Zone or black and white movies as I've We've spoken about that many times here on the been show. Been on the receiving Quite. end of some, some grief. But, um, <laughs> you know, you, you really introduced me to a lot of the, the classic stuff. And from going through and watching some of these episodes, they really hit home with a lot of socio-political viewpoints and a lot of them still ring true today. And that's kind of 
you know, why I picked the three that I picked. And so we're going to start off. My first pick was The Silence. And I am so proud that you picked that one because it was one that of in my million favorites that I didn't uh, pick. So I'm, I'm pleased. So so this aired in 1961, um, season two, um, directed by Boris Segal, and it was written by Rod Serling. And so the episode is about um, like this social club and this guy in, in the club is super chatty. And one of the other guys who, you know, looks very well off, um, decides to bet him half a million dollars that he can't be silent for a year. And so they go through the motions. They've got like this glass enclosure and he has to stay in this glass enclosure and can't say a word for an entire year, which he does and comes and, out. And expect- the money. Yeah. Five, half a million dollars, which today may not be a whole lot but you know this is back in the 60s and you know half a million dollars was a big deal and you know so he comes out and he's and he's he's pulled this off and you find out that the guy doesn't have the money and then the big twist at the end you find out that the guy had his vocal cords permanently severed so that he could win this bet and you know what this spoke to me i mean Aside from the the classism, um, you know, it spoke to me like the links that people would go for money. Yeah, yes. it's and that and that's kind yeah. of a recurring theme that that social class, you know, theme is it, just very prevalent in in a lot of the uh, the episodes. Yeah. So for my second pick. Oh, uh, also on that one, I just went there one. Uh, French Tone plays the older gentleman, um, and he was a well-known, like, classic film actor, um, and he, I, I just really think he sold his character. Like, everybody was just on point in that episode. Yeah. French so, yeah, Tone, yeah. everybody. All right, and for my second one, um, I picked Shadow Play, which was another season two, aired in uh, 1961. Uh, this one was directed by John Brom and written by Charles Beaumont and Rod Serling. And uh, this one's about a, a guy trapped in a reoccurring nightmare, and he's sentenced to death uh, by execution. And every time he goes through this this nightmare, he he tries to convince people that they're all just a part of his his dream, and that when he dies, they die with him. And I love this one because I'm a big fan of quantum theory and different, different uh, takes on reality and uh, perception and things like that. And it, it really like, it, it, I don't know, just the way it played out. Like it, it's one of those episodes that made you think and it, and it wasn't so much like, you know, it's not so much horror, but touches the psyche a little bit. Oh, I think, yeah, quite a lot. Absolutely. You know, um, every time I watch that episode, I think of, um, I'm a big Bob Dylan fan. Um, Bob Dylan quote from Bob Dylan's dream. And he said, I'll be in your dream if you'll be in mine. But um, (laughs) it's a great line. (laughs) You know, I I think it was just interesting, especially when you're talking about like quantum theory and stuff like, you know, it's one of those like, I think as a child, your mind is more open. 
and you think like you, you, that's when you'll just be like you know swinging on the swings thinking about like I wonder you know if you know I'm you know I'm part of someone's dream or you know just it's like it's almost like a childlike approach where whereas adults kind of close their minds to that um like if you guys don't exist I've dreamed you and they're all just like you know acting the way that people would act like you're absolutely batshit insane he's like no I'm serious I keep having the same dream. Yeah. Serling was so ahead of his time in his writing that way. Oh, yeah. Definitely. This episode brought me back to um, that episode of Black Mirror with the museum. If you've seen it, where the guy is, uh, his like digital identity is condemned to be executed over and over again. Yeah. Back to that. That was, I I found that to be incredibly dark, which, which, which I dig, you know. Yeah. made me it made it harken me back to that well and that's that's the thing with that i i learned with with uh black mirror i caught on late i heard a lot of people rave about it but i you know i don't think i started watching until the third season but you can see a lot of you know similarities between twilight zone now that i've watched a lot more of it and black mirror yeah yeah you know it's kind of like uh black mirror is more of like a upgraded for you know with more like technology and, and, and things like that, but it's still at the core of it, similar stories. Yeah. And uh, moving along, my third pick, uh, the midnight sun. And this is from season three aired in uh, the, the tail end of 1961 uh, directed by Anton leader and another written by Rod Serling. And this one involves uh, uh, two women in an apartment in the, Earth is apparently falling out of orbit and falling into the sun, and they're trying to deal with the heat and, you know, everything that goes along with it, and so she, you know, she paints, and she paints this, you know, beautiful painting, and then she falls asleep to wake up and find out that it's actually super cold, and that was all like a fever dream, and for me, the thing that stuck out about this was climate change. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and 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 how much it harkens, you know, from the '60s to today. Um, and funnily enough, a uh, little trivia about this: this episode was telecast on the very same day that they, uh, the U.S. government, launched a uh, the first Minuteman missile. Oh wow! Yeah. Yeah. Um, may I interject? Go for it. The, the scene in that episode that always stuck out to me was when essentially people have abandoned this building. It's the two women living alone. And a man actually barges in and threatens them with a gun. Mm-hmm. And he steals their one cold bottle of water and guzzles it. And, and then he actually breaks down and begs their forgiveness when he realizes what he's done. And that speaks to me because color me a cynic here, but I believe, you know, Heath Ledger's Joker and the Batman movie was right that we can tell ourselves we're civilized, but when things get that desperate, we turn each other. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Definitely. I, was, I love the fact that the twist in this one is just it, it's a very it's just simply flipping the coin. OK, it's not actually really hot. It's just really cold, but it's the same situation i, I that, right. that that blew my mind when i was what whenever 12 or whenever when i saw this i just i just remember that being just an incredibly effective twist it's just yeah. it's simple and yet it changes everything yeah 
but it also changes nothing because yeah, you're, you're going right. to burn. You're still, right. you're still going to die. Almost nothing so changes. Like, yeah. Do I want to die from the heat or do I want to die from, you know, freezing to death? <laughs> I yeah. The world's going to end either way, you know? You're, well, you're all fucked either way. <laughs> well, I, yeah, I, right. I, you're equally screwed. Yeah. I'd just like to say the way the weather's been, I'd like to freeze to death. Yeah, oh totally. Yeah, yeah. But when winter comes, you'll be like, I wish I could like have heat stroke. Yep, always. Welcome to so, the Midwest. So those are my three picks. I, I really approve. Excellent. Good choice. I, I gotta um, say uh, of um uh, about um Sean's picks is that uh, I had a buddy who had never seen uh, the Twilight Zone before, and uh, the way I convinced him to watch the show was the Silence episode. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Good episode. I love that episode. So, yeah, I love that episode. And that was almost one of my picks. And then Michelle was like, oh, this is going to pick up the box. What's funny about The Silence is that um, it was not one that I thought he would pick. I just showed it to him because I was flipping through them. Um, I do have all the DVDs, but like it was so much easier to pull everything off Netflix because DVDs are in a box. There are like so many yeah. of them. But um, yeah. so I picked it. It was just, I was just having to pass it by. I'm like, oh, well. While we're doing this, let me watch this one because this is one of my favorites. And mm-hmm. and then he liked it so much. I was like, oh, I'm so glad because, you know, I, I showed him a right off the bat one that I'm going to mention later that I thought he would pick and he didn't pick it. So he surprised me. You know, I really I really like this pick. Yeah. Well, yeah. And, and I've got to say, like, what really, you know, caught my eye about Twilight Zone when we start talking about it was how much that Richard Matheson had done. Yeah. And, and we are big I've, Matheson fans. And, and I've read a lot of his work. And so when we, you know, I had a whole list on my phone of all the episodes that he did. And I thought, okay, these are the ones, you know, that I'm going to go through that I'm going to pick. And surprisingly enough, I didn't pick any of them. Yeah, that surprised not me that, too. Not that I didn't like them, but, you know, the, the, those three, you know, really stood out to me. And those were the ones I chose. So, you know, yeah, it, I, I like where you ended up, definitely. They're, they're good conversation starters and really good Absolutely. episodes. Really good episodes. On that note, um, let's go ahead to Dave and hear what he's got to say. Okay, I tried to pick my three um, without thinking about it too much, which is fairly easy for me. But I That's um, funny because I do have a point about yours in a minute. Uh, I didn't want to overthink it. And I tried not to pick like the low-hanging fruit, like the monsters are due on Elm Street and all those – but, but anyway, we all did um, that, <laughs> I, I was, but it was so, oh my God, it's so hard. I mean, you know, it's, it's, it was impossible, but the first one I picked was, um, what season one, episode 15, I shot an arrow into the air. It's just, it's one that just popped into my mind as soon as you asked me to pick three. Uh, um, it's, it's where got a beautiful title and it's, yeah. Oh, it's, it's, it, and it's, um, it, yeah, because it's, it's sort of, um, hopeful and yet, you know, shooting an arrow into the air and seeing where it lands, and yet where it lands isn't so great for these guys. But um, yeah, and it's got um, it's got um, Edward Bins in it, who um, starred as the um, bomber uh, commander in Failsafe, which is a movie everyone should watch, uh, which I thought was great. But you know, so these uh, eight men are launched on it's, it's apparently supposed to be Earth's first, um, um, you know, space rocket. And then they they crash land and they don't know where they are. They, they are on some asteroid and there four of them are dead. And, and the fifth one is dying. And the one guy, uh, Officer Corey, played by Dewey Martin, is maybe the biggest dick 
in all of the Twilight Zone episodes. Yeah, he's an a series, asshole. Oh, yeah. A series, oh, yeah. you know, filled with dicks. And, yes. and he, he's maybe one of the biggest, and he plays it so well. He's just so, like when he's drinking the water, it's just pouring down his chin and he doesn't care. And anyway, um, I thought that was great. But and he then does. They, and they, and they, they come to find out because the, 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 uh, the third survivor is dying and he tries to draw. They don't know what it is. It's a symbol. And it comes to find out it's a telephone pole. And he's like 26 miles outside of Reno, you know, in the desert. Uh, so they had crash landed back on Earth, which gives a real, which has a real uh, Planet of the Apes vibe for me, uh, which Rod yeah. Serling wrote. They, they think they're somewhere else and they're actually back on Earth. So that has a whole and that ties into the last episode I picked, too. And I just, uh, I yeah, just, it was, that's what I thought of when I saw your picks. I was like, oh, those are, hmm. Yeah, but that's, well, Planet of the Apes is, this, is not to go off topic too much, but it's just, this, it's to me, it's it's the penultimate 70s sci fi. There's nothing better than Planet of the Apes. It's but, really um, good. And, and, well, and, and so, I've, you know, I've never yeah. seen Zardoz, and I'm afraid to because I've seen pictures of Sean Connery in that underwear that he's wearing. Zardoz is. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know that my brain needs that, but anyway, it's okay. uh, this is this is a great episode about just a dickhead getting his comeuppance, which is a lot of Twilight Zone. And yeah, and is, you, and you also didn't mention yeah he to be like the complete dick, he murders the last two guys. Right, he murders the last guy to get his water, and then he's like, you know, I could have just walked to Reno and gotten a drink at a casino, you know, at a, at a blackjack table. Uh, but this is one of the only ones, one of the, uh, I, I don't know if it's the only, but it might be one of the only episodes um, where uh, Serling paid for the uh, screenplay. He met this woman, a Madeline Champion, at a dinner party, and she pitched the story, and he paid her 500 bucks on the spot for it. I, I don't know if it's the only time, but it's one of the only times where he, like, went outside of his core crew of writers for a screenplay. I found that interesting, and I, it's yeah. one of my favorites. It's an interesting story, definitely. Um, I love those the, the the tone of those. There's several episodes that have that same tone. They're all different, but they're the same. You know what I mean? Well, yeah, people put under duress, and which ones? Who, who turns into what under duress? Right, right. Which which is which well, is also, there's also there's also there's also quite episodes where where like they're dickheads getting their comeuppance. Oh, and that's you know, always like, a pleasure to watch, isn't it? Yeah, to totally. Who doesn't like yeah. that? Especially when he's mugging for it, like um, like this uh, Dewey Martin uh, was in this episode. He's just his facial expression. He's just completely, you know, just a complete douche. And it's yeah. it's, it's 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 great. It's good stuff. I I love that episode. So uh, the second one is the Invaders. This one, what is this? This is season two, episode fifteen, starring. Yeah, this is a Matheson one. This is yeah. a right written Richard Matheson, who was you know the patron saint, at least for me of. Of horror, I guess you, you can trace everything back to him. Mm-hmm. Uh, He's reverent, yeah. <laughs> starring Agnes Moorhead, who was Andorra in Bewitched, so hell yes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the world's worst mother-in-law. <laughs> <laughs> and it's one of the few episodes that has no spoken dialogue, except at the very end, where it's, it's yeah, just the very end. It's just yep. um, the yeah, and it's not even you don't see the character speaking it, but. Uh, uh, one thing I loved about this one is the fake out at the beginning when Rod Serling does his, because the reveal is that she's the giant alien and that, that the spaceship is actually, you know, the humans from Earth. But, but the the opening narration, Rod Serling steps into frame and he's standing outside of the window of the cabin where she is working in the kitchen. It's a, it's a big fake out, you know. Yeah. That's actually and a, a brilliant. Con- 
Oh, it's absolutely brilliant because it, it, it reinforces the image in your mind that she's a human. And I thought that was just absolutely brilliant because he doesn't always do that. He doesn't always appear physically in the opening narration. And I yeah, that, that, was that was more of like a later episode kind of thing where he did it more frequently. But yeah, I mean, it really, it, it's such a great twist. Uh, it's a great, it's an absolute brilliant fake out. And her acting, I don't know if it's just me, but I watched it a couple of times. And she, I, I think anyway, that she gives little hints in her performance that she's not quite human. Sort of her responses are sort of guttural and maybe yeah, a little bit, a yeah. little bit over, a little bit over. Um, I, I, I don't know what what the word is. Like a little extreme. Her motions are a little bit bird-like. I'm not sure if that's just me reading into it. But but you know, she. No, just, I, I mean I noticed it too. I've, I've noticed it. I just rewatched it uh, last night. Um, but I've seen it many times. It's one of my daughter's favorite episodes because she's a big TZ nerd like me. Um, but yeah, <laughs> it it's definitely comes across. Um, I don't think on your first viewing, but when you watch it again, you do notice that. Okay, I see a little bit where she's not probably, you know, a human. Yeah, I, that's that's as what we I, know it. And, and, and right, and then you, when you watch it again after knowing the twist, it it, it comes out more. Yes. Um, and I just also have to just speak to how the, uh, the, the, the little robot, well, they're not robots. I guess they're supposed to be humans in spacesuits. Just how cute those little guys were. You know, these little yeah, they little, look like toys. They got little radar <laughs> dishes on they their heads. They are. They're so cute. I just want one. I want to hug one. You know, I just want to hug one. They're so great. That, I'm, and this episode, zapping me, though, because that looked pretty, like, yeah, ugly. <laughs> with the little bug zapper thing. And this is one of the first episodes that I remember seeing as a kid. And I remember it just blowing my mind because it's just, it's just a question of scale. Uh, and I, it just made me think, you know, again, the 12 year old me watching it, it made you think like, don't assume everything is exactly what it seems. And I, I just absolutely adore that episode. Yeah. That's a, that's a famous one. It's a great one. Yeah. And apparently it's one of, it was one of Rod Sterling's favorite ones too, is from what I've read. He yeah. I mean, he was an actor and a playwright and he loved a good performance and Agnes Moorhead, she really went there. And, and, to, to go all that way without dialogue is yeah no yeah, yeah. No, right no dialogue at all it's just acting a, it's without dialogue is like the hardest thing <laughs> like what, oh, what, one of the one, one of the most memorable Buffy the Vampire Slayer episodes there was no dialogue for the whole episode oh wow really yeah where where some cabal of demons have stolen their voices and so the whole thing there was no dialogue oh, it's, con- it's considered one of their best episodes oh I would imagine so I think Sarah Michelle Gellar is just you know, fantastic yes. anyway. Yeah. He's my everything. <laughs> <laughs> and my third one, I, again, I just picked these off the top of my head, ones that I remembered from a kid watching this show on like at midnight on like my five inch black and white TV screen in my bedroom was the Rip Van, Rip, sorry, Rip Van Winkle Caper. Which season. is a favorite of mine. So I was excited to see that one. Yeah. No, really? Oh, yeah. Season two, episode 24. Uh, written by Rod Serling, right? This is a great one because it's not specifically sci-fi-y. It's more caper with a little bit of like high-tech stuff. Um, the four uh, guys rip off, I guess it was supposed to be a million dollars worth of gold. Yeah, have gold bricks from a train. And then the 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 uh, big, the, the henchman, uh, the uh, the main guy, Oscar Beregi, I don't know how to pronounce his last name, Beregi, who's got a serious Bond villain vibe going in this one which I yes love. he does it's kind of yeah, and very intelligent oh it's great right he's of course he's got to have the accent it's just so great 
and and the other actors in it too, especially John Mitchum, who plays one of the other henchmen, who was in like three of the first Dirty Harry movies, who's got just an unforgettable face. I just love his I love his character. So they go into suspended animation, uh, supposedly for a hundred years, so that when they come out, you know, the cr the crime will be off the, uh, you know, it'll be out of the public uh, eye, and they'll be able to spend their gold. And uh, they come out. And what the one guy is dead, which which brings me back to Planet of the Apes, because his um, suspended hibernation casket is cracked by a rock that had fallen from the ceiling of the cave, which mm -hmm. goes right back to Planet of the Apes again, which which I blew my mind again because um, it's written by Rod. Certainly, I, I don't know for a fact that that's where he got that idea from, but it just goes right back to it for me. And then, uh, right, so they're, again, fighting over the water, which goes back to that first one I picked again. And then at the and then the final one is where the, the, the uh, main guy tries to offer the uh, civilians water, or I'm sorry, gold, to um, give him water. And they're like, well, we, you know, maybe 100 years ago, but we've just discovered how to manufacture gold now. It's just a great <laughs> twist. And it's not, it's not specifically sci-fi or even horror. It's just four criminals getting their comeuppance again. And being criminals, killing each other off, or you know, right? Especially you a drink of water for it's going to cost you a bar of gold, though. One especially, um, I think it's is it Lou Gallo who plays the guy who like runs over the other dude with the truck. He's like the total. Uh, oh, he's just, a total badass motherfucker. Just not a not a not a nice guy. Absolutely. Winds not. up selling <laughs> winds up selling a sip of gold for one gold bar, or a sip of water for one gold bar. It's just, yeah. And um, and that's Speaking a great of one. Which, if I can like make a comparison what i noticed as um in your choices um i shot an arrow into the air and the rip van winkle caper the water rationing is everything the water is everything in yeah. both of those it, it's what costs human lives to get yeah that, you know, that's in I both think that's, of those I think because it's the most elemental thing that we all need so it's it's easy to reduce if you reduce people down to their base needs, you know, water, if you're going to, that's the one thing you're going to be fighting over at the very end is water. Yeah. And, and, it's, just, and it's just, brings yeah. So out you're basically like, here, I'll give you, I'll give you my gold. Let me have a swallow of water. Yeah. You know, suddenly it doesn't mean that much. I um, think we like to see villains who have high expectations brought low by circumstance, which is again, the, the twilight zone, I think encapsulated is just people with their greatest, goals and schemes just reduced to, you know, nothing by, by chance or by fate. And I just, I just um, love, I, I, I just, that's, that's my third choice. And I love that one. I love, I love the cast. I love the four actors playing. They're really good. They're such, they all have such great faces. All four of them. They got the, you know, you get the one guy with the big, you know, the, the one guy playing like the German guy. And it's just, it's just, a, they're four great uh, character actors too. And that, so those are my three. And thank you very much. Yeah. They're great picks. Yeah, I, I like that recurring theme of the water. And, you know, that, that still is relevant. You know, that's what I like about Twilight Zone. That's why it's still relevant, because it goes to, like, just basic things about humans. Um, you know, and, and um, fighting over resources. I'm sorry? Fighting over resources? Yes. Yeah, if I may. And again, part of what's so great about Twilight Zone for us today is how I was speaking it was of its times, and the fear of nuclear fallout had really only just come totally rip-roaring into the public consciousness, and the fear of, like, irradiated water and irradiated food had to be very present in people's mind. Yes. Yeah. And, but, 
It was oh, so okay. hard to pick three. It was just so hard to pick three. I'm yeah. telling you. Oh, we'll, yeah. we'll have time at the end. We can yeah. throw on our honorable mentions because I have one that I was so sure Sean was going to pick because I'd already picked my three and he didn't pick it. And I feel like it must be discussed, but we'll get there. Specifically um, painful. Um, <laughs> next up is Daniel. Okay. Well, it's really hard to pick out because it is such a brilliant show. But uh, for my number one pick, what I consider one of the most nuanced episodes, The Dummy. Yeah. yeah, and it's uh, one of those straight horror, I think, episodes. Yes. Well, it's uh, season three. This one was writ- directed by Abner Bieberman and written by Rod Serling, and it certainly shows. <laughs> and I, I agree. I agree. It's a horror episode, but it's not like a supernatural horror, like a lot of people think. It's psychological. Yes. Yes. I mean, but that psychological horror is the thing right now. You yeah, know, we yeah. go through waves. To, just to summarize, but the plot revolves around a, uh, a nightclub performer who believes that his ventriloquist dummy, Willie, is alive. And he tries to start a new act with a new dummy, only to hear Willie's voice everywhere he goes. And in the end, uh, it's him on stage performing, but now he and Willie have squished faces. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's the, definitely creepy. Yeah, it... When I was a kid, I was terrified of killer dolls like Chucky and, you know, Puppet Master. And so this one freaked me. Yeah, yeah. As, as an adult, though, I think it's so brilliant because I don't see it as a supernatural story about Willie playing hide the soul with this uh, ventriloquist. I see it. I see, I, I see it as. Yeah. I see it as a metaphor about mental illness. Yes, I was thinking oh. the same thing. And, and 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 not even like multiple personality disorder or anything like that. It's more about like paranoia and anxiety. Mm-hmm. It's it's all because the thing I noticed in the episode is this this ventriloquist. Uh, like his agent tells him, if you stop drinking and get your head straight, you'll be a star. The audience loves his act and showgirls try to flirt with him. So by every means, his life is going great. It's on the upswing. What's holding him back is his fear that Willie is alive. And and when he tries to drop Willie to start a new act, it's still there. Everywhere he goes, he's hearing Willie's voice. And that twist ending, I see that as an anagram for his fear now dominates him so much that he's the puppet. Yes. You know, he lives by his fear. It controls him. And speaking as someone who has um, all three anxiety disorders, I can tell you, yes... That that absolutely rings true. It it can run you if you let it. It can run you. Because when, when I was in college, I read an article about uh, a woman, I think it was in New York, who she'd become convinced there was a man living in an apartment across the street from hers, watching her with binoculars. And she, she had, like, no reason to believe this guy existed, but she convinced herself, no, he's there and he's watching me. And she would literally time every day when she would leave and go from her apartment around when she thought he was watching her. And and I see that when I watch the dummy, like this guy, there's no rational reason to believe the hunk of wood is alive, but in his head, no, he's alive. Now you find ways to convince yourself, even yeah. though it's a horrible truth, you know, it, it may not be the truth, but you find ways to convince yourself of this horribleness because even there might be a smidge of relief in it. Yeah, in a, in a way, it's there's a safety, a comfort in what you know you can expect. Even though it's terrible, yes, yeah. absolutely. And again, speaking from experience, I absolutely agree with that. And and plus, in terms of the horror of the Twilight Zone, 
that scene at the start when he's in his dressing room, there's just this brilliantly tense moment with minimal music, minimal dialogue, where like he, he puts Willie in the chair, looks at his hand and sees bite marks in his finger. And then yes. he, and, and they show like Willie's eyes seem to be turned toward him. He bends down to get his bottle out of his out of his drawer, sits up, and Willie's head is turned the other way. It's just, it's yeah. so tense. It sends chills up the spine. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's so great. And just you know, in the background, you just you never see him actually like move at that point. It's just you'll see that his arms across the back of the sofa, his legs are now crossed. You know, just the cutaways, and you you never actually see that move. You know, you're just you're in. The main characters had like, oh shit. Yeah, and yeah. that's like emphasizing what I said about it's all in his head. That absolutely, we're not actually seeing Willie move. He's telling himself he's moving. Yeah, yeah. He, he's convincing himself because it's the only thing that you know will make sense out of this paranoia that he feels. And if and if I could just interject, um, sure. Ventriloquist dummies are just fucking creepy. Oh God. Amen. Yeah. yeah. Amen. No, yes. thank you. The okay. movie Magic? Come on. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> My mom loves that movie. <laughs> that is such a great movie. And, and and Chucky and Puppet Master, I mean, it goes on and on. I think we find yeah. we find ventricular dummies and dolls in general creepy in a way with their eyes. Also, or de- yeah. also yeah, um, uh, oh, James Wan's movie. Also, James Wan's movie, Dead Silence. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. That shit is the the, the puppets in there. Are just There's something fundamentally creepy about them. There just is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and you know dolls as well, which you know I really feel like as far as horror, it all comes you know with the dolls and and it's becoming like its own kind of thing in in the oh, horror God. genre. But it really started here in the Twilight yeah. Zone. You know what I mean? Yeah. With one of the most famous episodes, Talkie Tina. That's right. Yeah. Speaking of which, we'll hear about that later. <laughs> So uh, for my number two pick, so yeah, <laughs> one of them, one of them, but, one, one. But yeah. um, I'm gonna reference Nick of Time. Yes, that is such a great one. And, really. Um, this was season two, uh, directed by Richard L. Blair, and was actually written by Richard Madison, not by uh, Serling. But um, the the longest short is that Shatner's character and his wife, uh, their car breaks down, so they stop in a diner while it's being repaired. And there's a, uh, I believe it's a tissue paper holder that has a little fortune telling machine attached to it. With a devil head on it, which you With can little... actually buy those, by the way. Yeah, I yeah, the, the I coolest devil head so ever. I'll just give a little plug to my friend, the homicidal homemaker here. She has a video of me replicas of that. It's great. Anyhow, the, the the driving point is that every time Shatner puts a coin in and gets his fortune, it ends up coming true. And throughout the episode, he even though his car gets fixed, he keeps finding excuses to stay in this diner and putting more coins in the machine. And, you know, he orders multiple meals, he orders dessert, and he needs to make phone calls. And and at the climax, it reaches the point where he's just, like, furiously slotting coins in the machine and asking questions like, uh, where are we going to live? Are we going to do this? Are we going to do that? And his wife breaks down and finally shakes him out of it, and they leave. And the twist ending is that then another older couple come in and sit down and they put a coin in and they say, can we ask more questions now? So yeah, they're, so they're not they're the only yeah. ones. Who've fallen yeah. into this trap. Yeah. And t- to me, this is a great double episode in a way because, um, I mean, for one thing, the power that a silly superstition can have over people, like, 
There, there, there literally are people who walk around avoiding cracks in the street. I can't imagine what they subject themselves to. Right. Yeah. But I also see this, again, as almost being an anagram of mental illness about addiction. I was going to say that, um, and not just addiction, but fear. Um, yeah, fe- you know. fear is a big Fear is a big yes. part of addiction. And I was going to make the, the commentary that, you know, again, um, like what uh, Dave did, you know, with the dummy and Nick of Time, we have these two paranoia, fear-based mental illness episodes. So, so kind of like a recurring theme in your choices. And, um, and in this case, like I said about, well, both fear, paranoia, and addiction – the way that Shatner keeps looking for excuses, reasons to stay, reasons to keep slot, putting slots in. Like, uh, I myself have had my issues with drinking on and off. I've never been a full-blown alcoholic, but I go through periods where I'm doing it too much. And it's because, you know, I go looking for excuses. Oh, good news. I'm going to have a drink. Oh, bad, bad news. news. Bad news. That sucks. I'm going to have a drink. Yeah. Oh, I got nothing to do today. I'm going to have a drink, you know. So, And he, he's looking for reasons to keep putting coins in the machine. He can't stop himself. And... Uh, you know, a story about Stephen King when he was at the height of his drug addiction was his fear that yeah. he, that that on one hand, he was terrified what would happen if his wife and kids found out he was doing coke. On the other, he was terrified of the idea of living his life without it. Right. And, and that's, that's like real. Shatner, that's, like, that's like Shatner here. He He's almost terrified to leave this stupid little tissue machine. Yeah. Um, you, you can see the fear on him. And, and one thing that... Um, they did really well on Twilight Zone. No, it's it's in black and white, but they they were doing the glycerin sweat a lot and, and at very crucial points. And and you yeah. see him just like literally sweating over this. Like, well, yeah, can like we that. leave? Can we leave after four? Can I ever leave here? Am I going to be here forever? You know, to the point where he's you know got himself in such a frenzy that he doesn't even think he can step outside. That he can't leave the town. That he can't. You know, it, it's just nuts. So uh, moving on to my third pick. This is a bit of a cliche one, in my opinion, but uh, no less relevant no matter what time we live in. He's alive. Yeah, this is from the infamous uh, season four. Yeah, season four, uh, directed by Stuart Rosenberg, written by Rod Serling, and really most noted because it stars a very young um, Dennis Hopper. Yep. But uh, the the long and short of the episode, Dennis Hopper is a young uh, political agitator who's trying to get his own movement started. And he just sucks at it. Like, he's not a good public speaker. He doesn't interest people, doesn't motivate them. And then out of nowhere, a man in the shadows starts instructing him, telling him, like, this is how you work a crowd. This is how you get them to listen to you. And Dennis Hopper starts scapegoating. I wouldn't even say minorities. He never names who he's actually scapegoating. But he starts delivering these really venomous speeches where he talks about they are the ones making us live in poverty. They are the ones who are against us. And and at, at the climax, well, not the climax, but eventually an, an older Jewish man who lived through the war steps on stage and just totally shames him, just says, like, I'm, I'm not going to watch someone do this again. And the crowd drifts off. And at that point, Dennis Hopper's mysterious patron shows up and it's Hitler. And he works this Dennis Hopper's character up into murdering the old Jewish man and telling him, like, get that obstacle out of your way and then you're invincible. And at the end of the episode, Dennis Hopper's character gets shot by the police. And all you see is the shadow of Hitler standing over him. Then he just walks down the street. You see his shadow going. 
and Rod Serling delivers just a brilliant narration about, you know, he's always going to be there. Doesn't matter what generation, doesn't matter where, doesn't matter who is being scapegoated. That's him. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I don't like to drag direct politics into any of our podcasts, but really there is no escaping it. When you see that happening, when you see anyone being scapegoated like this and, you know, be, when you see someone using that kind of acid to work people up, you cannot get that out of your head. Absolutely. I and, feel that, yeah. And, and to me, it's another example where the Twilight Zone bespoke its time so much because as a lover of history, as I keep repeating in these episodes, um, it strikes me how only a single generation passed between the First and Second World War. So there right. were, at the time this episode aired, there were still a lot of people who had lived through both. And the fear that it could happen again had to be just so ever-present in people's minds, particularly with the Cold War in the full swing. Yeah, definitely. And Rod, Serling, Rod Serling's experiences in World War II shaped so much of this. And from what I've read, his early attempts to, to get into uh, script writing and, and screenwriting failed. And he thought he could get his, his political and social views through with science fiction and horror more easily, I think, because maybe he figured the censors oh, wouldn't did. be so hip to it. And this is one that just screams it. You know, it's just, it's just, it, it's amazing. I, he, I love this not, it's a rare example where he's not subtle. He's just right in your face, but he still does it with such pizzazz. And, yeah. yeah. And yeah. plus a young Dennis Hopper. You gotta love that. <laughs> he, he, he was brilliant even then. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, uh, you know, people don't talk about uh, season four too much because it was unpopular uh, with the hour long episodes, but um, you know, there are some, there are some good ones in there and that's one of them. Um, and it, it's one of those, again, that rings true. It's, it's kind of timeless. It did speak of the times, but yet it's timeless. It's still relevant. Definitely. It will yeah. always be. Yes, it will always be. And and Sterling, the way, you know, he had that voice and just the way that, you know, he did those closing, um, you know, words. It's, it's just like, oh, wow, that just he, hits he, you so hard. He doesn't try to be melodramatic. He says it so matter of fact. Yeah, and that's why, that's how he, he just really sells it, you know, completely, and it, it's haunting, and it stays with you because of his delivery and his choice of words, and, you know, it's just, it, it's really great in that episode, for sure. It's great in every episode, but that one in particular is really good. <clears throat> so, those so that, are my picks. Those are, uh, those are really great choices. Thank you, um, So good. Yeah. And Rob, what do you, what do you got? Okay, um, this, um, my three picks, my first number three, because I'm going three to one. Okay. Uh, that's how I view these picks. Um, this was one that uh, uh, when you, we were discussing doing this episode, um, I was like, I could give you my picks right now. And he was like, I already know one of them is going to be this one. And Candy was <laughs> absolutely correct. We talked correct. about it before, yeah. <laughs> yeah, number three is uh, season one episode uh the fever that's a really good one yeah yes i i i love the fever uh of course um for those who know the fever is about uh F mr franklin gibbs and his wife flora who win a contest to go to las vegas he's um you know very religious man a very uptight person and he just views all this gambling you know 
and you know being in the casino as just yeah just just devil just devil stuff and uh by just sheer you know Belevins, if you will, he gets sucked into this slot machine and uh, he plays a dollar and a dollar and just going into what Danny said earlier, it just becomes sheer, uh, like, you know, purely addicted to it, to where he's up at least, you know, 24 hours just throwing money and money in there and cashing multiple checks to pour money and money in there until the machine quits on him. And which sends him into a freak out mode, and uh, you know they 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 send they kick him out of the casino. He tries to go to bed, but he can hear this machine actually calling him. Franklin. And it's fucked up yeah. sounding. Yeah, Franklin, Franklin. Franklin. You know, and he's he's absolutely terrified. Poor Flora is absolutely terrified. Franklin, what is it? You know, <laughs> no, he has this vision of the slot machine approaching him and it causes him to go crashing out the window to his death. You know, he's lying on the floor. There's a crowd around him. And then like, you know, as the crowd just completely dies away, the ultimate fuck you, (laughs) the slot machine appears to give him his dollar back. Yeah. (laughs) Like, it takes his dollar. Give me back my dollar. Give me back my dollar. And then the machine goes here. Here's your dollar back now. And it's just like, you know, it's just a complete Go on, sucker. Yeah, totally, <laughs> totally. Now, this is this is this was an episode written by Serling, um, directed by Robert Flory. And um going back, I'm glad that Danny brought it up with addiction. This is a clear um episode about dealing with addiction because he purely like not just addiction but corruption, you know, and how like, you know, People are easily corrupted. I, I have a, I have a thing why Sterling has remained so relevant, but I'll get into that when I get to my number one choice. Um, like you know, the the addiction and corruption of like you know the slot machine per, per se. Like I mean, it, it had you know just like it, it had you know truth to it because Sterling had gone to Las Vegas with his wife once and. You know, she had won money on the slot machines, but he kept losing. But he kept feeling feeling the need to play, to play. You know what I'm saying? In order to get his money, and you know, he just couldn't get it. So that that was the clear inspiration of this episode. And it's just, you know, it's one of those episodes where it's just like, you know, like it 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 completely just scared me off of gambling. I remember, um, <laughs> I I remember. Yeah, I remember uh, I went to, Dan, you might know this place, uh, The Revel in New Jersey, the, which is no longer Atlantic existing. City, the Revel, which, oh, God, that place was an eyesore, let me tell you. Yeah. <laughs> no, but it was cool. I, I, I actually went there to see, uh, I'm a fight fan, so I went to see uh, UFC, which was in the arena. But we had to cut through the casino, and I'd never seen a casino before. I'm like, oh my god, this is like in the movies, like you know, like they really play blackjack and you know, craps and all that shit. And uh, uh, (laughs) so, so uh, my girlfriend at the time, as we're going, she was like, oh, let's let's play the slot machines. And I go, no, I seen the fever. That's okay. (laughs) (laughs) Right, and and she didn't get it because she wasn't really into the Twilight Zone until I showed her the episode. She's like, okay, now I get it. You know yeah. what I'm saying? Like, like I just you know to this day because of 
you know, that episode, I, I, I just don't gamble, you know, because, you know, it's just that fear of the addiction of just, you know, okay, I got to get my money. I got to well, get my you money. Know, and wait, I got to tell you, if I can like throw in for a second, mm-hmm. um, my uh, biological father is a gambling addict and I have lived through this. I mean, he, when I was like 15 years old, I would see him like once a week and he would take me to bet on the ponies. And I had a, a thing about like, I, I always picked by name. I never looked at stats. I just picked by name and I would uh-huh. win like, I would just win like money for him. So he'd be like, oh, here's 50 bucks. And I'm 15 years old. Like, fuck, 50 bucks. All right. It was a 90. So, you know, um, but I saw like what it did to him, you know, and how he thought he could beat the system and you can't. And it's just like any other addiction. And, you know, I, I there's just things I learned. But, you know, for me, it's I, I don't even like to buy lottery tickets. I don't gamble whatsoever. And even in right. like an argument, or something, I'll, I, it's very rare when you'll hear me say, I bet this, even just in a conversation, because I only say I bet if I know I'm going to win that argument. I bet you yeah. this much money, or I bet you this, that this is going to happen, and that's only when I'm sure. I don't bet. It's not really a bet because I know I'm right. You know, so <laughs> I've, seen, I've seen what it does to people and how awful it is. And, you know, my best friend, I was a bridesmaid in her wedding. Um, God, I was like 20. 21 I was 21 and we we went to for her bachelorette party to a casino and everybody's having a good old time on the slot machine so I'm just sitting there like looking at like my watered down drink like mm, you know this isn't fun I don't like this people say casinos is a great experience it sucks it does it does. If you're not into gambling, the, the, the drinks it, it are watered down. You. you only win like maybe twenty percent of the time. It's crowded. It's smoky. And 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 the game is fixed. Like you know, like the it, odds it, are you're, you're really, not in your favor yeah, ever. Yeah, it's 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 everything is bet against you. You know what I'm saying? So it's like, why although, even bother? If if I may tell this story, yes. For my 21st birthday, my mother insisted on taking me to Atlantic City because I've got a very young face. So me at 21, I looked like I was still 16. I had the same and, problem. And she took me there just because she wanted to laugh watching the casino workers swarm me the instant I hit the floor. Yeah. <laughs> but but the time I went there, there were these Elvira-themed slot machines. <laughs> and and I you actually, were like, ooh. <laughs> well, I, I actually had a pretty good streak on one. And at one point, a bonus screen popped up saying, touch one of these three treasure chests. And my mom nudges me and says, hey, you get to touch Elvira's chest, son. Oh, <laughs> my <bro>. God. <laughs> yeah, thanks, mom. yeah, to me, it's just like, I don't know. When I walk into a casino, I mean, obviously, I'm a fan of the, the episode The Fever. But, you know, having experienced somebody, somebody who, like, had their life ruined by gambling... Um, you know, it's just made me not interested whatsoever. So it's like, it's so boring to me. Everybody's like, I want to go to Vegas. I'm like, I guess if there's like some good shows or something, or just to look around, yeah, I'm not sure interested don't go in for gambling. The <laughs> <laughs> like, I'm just not, not into it. Um, I've been sworn off. Can't do it. I love playing blackjack. I've been a bunch of times, but there's, they're right. It's fun on the top. It's fun. But if you scratch off a little bit of the surface and you look around, it does get pretty depressing when you're sitting at a table or, you know, it's like one step away from those people who just sit in the gas station and do scratch offs. 
It's just really yeah. Yeah. And I've kind of lost like, my Like, I'm trying to buy a pack of was... cigarettes, and, like, I got Grandma in front of me buying, like, $80 worth of scratch-offs. I'm like, oh, my God. Yeah. yeah the, when the, I was younger, crazy. I think I really liked it. But I think I've, I've gotten older. I've lost my taste for it. Um, I, I see the, 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 um, the negative side of it more now. And it's, you're kind of like, oh, this is just depressing, you know? Yes. Yeah, totally. Well, combined with, you know, Twilight Zone, which was, you know, next to God for me um, growing up and, uh, you know, just seeing it before I was of age to gamble. Um, once I got of age to gamble, I had zero interest, <laughs> none whatsoever, not even the slots. My mom was like, oh, I like to go and play the slots. She's like, you know, because um, every time, you know, she lives in Canada and she's like, yeah, I'll come up here and visit and we'll go to the casino. I'm like, mom, I don't want to fucking go to the casino. Like, that sounds so boring. I don't want to do it. Let's go to Niagara or some shit. But there's casinos there. <laughs> totally. But, you know, there's no clocks in casinos, by the way. Do you know that? No clocks. And they make it very hard to find the exits. Yes, on purpose. They're, they're, and they're built as labyrinths. Yeah, you can't, yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of psychological fucking shit going on there. So. Oh, yeah. yeah. The fact that the, 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 the slot machines, <laughs> when the slot machines pay off, they pay off the sound they make is like a C chord, which is apparently the most pleasing sound to like the human ear. Yeah. And that's all there that's is all intentional. There's so intent. much they're, psychological They're like shit. climbing into your brain and saying, just one more, just one more. Feels really good when you do this. <laughs> yeah, so, it's, yeah. It's so strange. So I'm sorry that kind of took a turn, but we do that. Yeah, sorry. No, 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 it's all right. You <laughs> I'm giving it back to you. <laughs> no, it's fine. All right, so um, I'm gonna go into my second episode now. Um, the season three episode, The Jungle. Oh my god, that one's so yeah. good. Good choice. Yeah, yeah, I lo- I, I love The Jungle. It, uh, it, this this was a no brainer when we discussed uh, doing this episode. It, like immediately, this one popped in my head um as you know uh is a businessman alan richards and his wife they're they're having a discussion where he discovers after he discovers that she kept you know shaman like you know things artifacts in order to protect them from because they're building this dam in this african village and you know they'd be completely decimating the land and uh he he's like this is superstitious bullshit and you know he throws it into the fire and immediately, as he opens the door to leave the the the, the apartment to, to go out to this late night meeting, there is a dead animal right outside his door, and it's like immediately, okay, you're fucked now. His wife is like, you know, because he's like, I'll be back later. She's like, you'll never be back. And then he goes, yeah. the door. She's like, don't open the door. Yeah, don't open the door. He opens it, and it's just like, Argh. and then uh. Uh, they, they have this discussion where you know they're building this uh, hydroelectric dam, and um, like he he he's basically even though he kind of like he blows her off, he kind of has the same sentiment in this meeting where it's like you know the, we got to be careful messing with these people and you know infringing upon their land and stuff. And then after the meeting, he goes to have a drink with his buddy, and you know uh, he has a good luck charm on him that the wife gives him. But as he leaves the bar, you know, and they lock up for the night, he realized he left it on the bar. And then uh, he starts being, like, just haunted by these sounds and just, like, you know, just the animals, just the jungle, period, and just completely just chasing him as he's trying to make it back to his, his, his place, his apartment building. And he finally gets there, 
And then he gets upstairs and he's just like completely terrified. So he pours himself a drink until he hears the sound of an angry lion in his bedroom. He opens the door and slowly but surely opens the door where he finds his wife dead on the bed and an angry lion sitting right next to her, which then <laughs> molds the shit out of him. And, you know, it's just, and that's it. And the reason why, oh, I picked this episode, it's not really like, you know, just, I mean, like, the episode is very, you know, obvious in the statement. It's like, don't mess with things you don't know about, you know. You know, kind of like, you know, the, the old mummy movies where, like, you know, the, the archaeologists are, you know, grave robbing, you know, and the mummy comes out and attacks them. And it's kind of the same. And, uh, and respect for the culture as well. Yeah, just, just, you know just completely just, you know, disrespecting the culture, and it, it will disrespect you right back. But the, the, the reason... Absolutely. Yes. Um, the reason why I, the, I love this episode much is because it's such a just... It's such a well-done episode in that in how terrifying it really is, where it's just completely, like... It, it, he's basically attacked by what he can't see. It's all just sounds, you know... The sounds of the jungle and the animals that inhabit, you know, this culture that he's completely disrespected. You know, you hear the lions and the tigers and all that kind of stuff, you know. And, and there's a beautiful just, shot um, yeah. where he's standing by the costume place. And there's a, a costume to be, like, for an African warrior. Yeah, yeah, and totally. It's, and it's alive. And it's staring at him. You know, and right. you could see it breathing, and it, you know, he sees it, and he's just like, "Oh shit," you know. <laughs> yeah, it's I also a love shot. the shot. I also love the shot where he's he's you know, he's he's walking down the block, and he stops in front of a tree, and he hears the animals in the tree, and it just it pans up to where like up the tree, and like there's this hole in like the branches and the leaves where you can see him, but like the the like the you know the leaves and the tree completely surround him like he's surrounded by the jungle in itself in in a yes. way and uh you know i mean it, it's kind of like i i i love this episode kind of the same way i love the dummy in that you know when you get to the gist of it is basically like just all sound and visuals but like you you don't see really anything you know it just it's just you know playing the imagination i i could imagine if they ever made this episode we get a bunch of fucking cgi tigers chasing them which and would ruin shit. it which would ruin yeah would yeah. be would complete another bullshit you know <laughs> the, I, I i i i love the way this episode is done you know the the what, what sells it to me is just the, the black and white cinematography of the episode like just how it's like gorgeous. it's beautiful it, oh it's absolutely Gorgeous. You know, that you the way. Color. Yeah, yeah. 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 I, you know, it's just absolutely beautifully done. And what, what I also like, the ending is beautiful too because he can't see what's chasing him. You know, he's, you know, like it's all he, it's all what you hear, but you don't see. And then at the end of the episode, he finally sees the. What what's been chasing him is this 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 lion that's been sitting that's sitting on his bed, and then when he gets mauled, then you can't see him anymore. So he's literally become one, you know, with like it's basically the ghost of this culture that he's basically decimated and building this hydroelectric dam, whatever. And now he's become one with them. He's become a ghost in himself, you know. 
And I, I just, I, I think that's just a, a beautiful way to put it, like that stinger of at the end of the episode, you know. Absolutely. Yeah. That and I that love, closing I, shot scared the crap out of me as a kid. I just remember that that clo- that lion leaping off the bed just. You're just like, oh me shit. I mean, right. I, I, and I still love cats, but they still scare me a little now. <laughs> well, I mean, that's that's why we love them. Is because we also fear and respect them. If they were just a little bit bigger, that's what I think about with my cat when she looks at me. If I was just a little bit bigger, motherfucker. <laughs> yeah, I respect I respect the cats. This is their house. We just live in it. Yeah, but anyway, but I loved I loved the ending of that episode. I just remember it just terrifying me as a kid, which I loved. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. that slow, no, it's slow. It's, it's, it's slow that one Cat Williams routine about the time I forget what zoo it was, where they had to put down a tiger that mauled a guy who stuck his head to the bars. And you know what those, <laughs> ti- you know what those tigers do when they're sitting in that cage all day? They're sitting there thinking, "God, I wish someone would stick his head in here." I wish. Please. <laughs> it's like payday. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Right. So, good pick. Yeah, great Thank pick. Uh, so and uh. Going into my number one, uh, I felt bad about this one because Candy actually said she was going to Well, you this shouldn't because we did a <laughs> Rob and I did kind of a switcheroo. We ended up picking episodes that the other person wanted. So yeah. that worked out because we were like, okay, I'll take that one. You get that one. You know? Right. But it worked yeah. out. Because yeah. this would have been so, one of mine. Yeah, yeah. He was like, oh, I was going to pick that one. And I was like, oh, shit. And she was like, no, that's all right. That's all right. I'm and gonna I was this like, one. And you were like, I was going to do that one. Wait. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally. So uh, my, my number one pick was the season two episode with the second season finale, The Obsolete Man. Oh, my God. It's Brilliant. great. Yeah. One of those Fritz, iconic. Fritz Weaver, Burgess Meredith. Right. Um, Staples this, uh, of Twilight Zone. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I know... Burgess Meredith is most remembered for Time Enough at Last, yes. you know, that that classic episode. But I, th- I think The Obsolete Man contains his best performance in the show. Yeah, he totally did. Um, this was another one written by Rob. Um, the, like I said, the second season finale, and it's about a uh, totalitarian uh, society you know, that is deeming people, you know, obsolete per se, you know. And um Mr. Uh Romney Word uh Wordsworth, played by Burgess Meredith, has been deemed obsolete by the state, by the Chancellor, played by Fritz Weaver, you know, for being a librarian. And you because know books like, are outlawed, yeah. Yeah, books are outlawed, uh, you know, and he refuses to denounce his profession, which is a librarian. And um, in this in this totalitarian state, you're allowed to when you declare it obsolete, you're allowed they allow you to pick your you know your method of you know death. And um, he keeps his a secret, you know per se, like he keeps his a secret. But like you know he he invites the chancellor into his quarters before you know his death. And while the chancellor is there, the chancellor is being a fucking dick. And uh, he t- he tells him that uh, his, his he picked his method as death as he wants to be you know uh, a bomb put into his quarters and he wants to be blown up but he also wants the door locked so that the chancellor is locked in with him mm-hmm. you know, saying we have you know we have this time left and you're gonna spend it with me and you oh, know 
to, to add to mood, can I put one thing in there? Sure. That God has been determined obsolete. Religion is obsolete. That's so, right. Yeah. And 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 Wordsworth, played by Burgess Meredith, um, is a still believes in God and is still a religious yes. man. So I, I think that's important. I'm sorry. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'll 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 already gotten into that, but uh, it's cool. Um, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. No, 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 no. It's fine. It's fine. It's fine. It's fine. Um. So as the time goes on, like you know, the chancellor is like. Okay, you know, we'll play your game. And the time is ticking down. And uh, Wordsworth is just, you know, he's, you know, strong. And he's <laughs> defiant ever. And you can see slowly that the Chancellor is losing it and losing Cracking. it. And losing it. And yeah, he just could. And by the, the last couple of minutes, he completely breaks. And he calls out for God. Oh, God, help, please. Oh. And <laughs> Wordsworth is like, okay. You know, here's, here's the key. You can leave. You know, and as the chancellor runs out, you know, the, he runs out and the corridors explode, killing Wordsworth. And the chancellor goes down, you know, to, to, to where the other members of state are. And they've seen, because this has all been televised, you know, for the yep. state. So they've seen it. Yeah. And now he's been declared obsolete. You know, because he called out for God, who, you know, has been declared obsolete in this world. And uh, he's like, no, no, I'm not obsolete. And then uh, you have, like, all the members of the society that are present, like, just like fucking creatures and zombies. They descend upon, including, uh, I noticed when I rewatched this episode, uh, a young Louise Fletcher is is one of them. Uh, oh, holy shit. <laughs> I was like, oh, shit, wow. what the fuck? <laughs> Medication and, time. Uh, yeah, like, you know, he tries to get away, but they, like, just, they just descend upon him, like, almost like zombies. It's just like, like, they just, you know, I'm, I'm pretty sure this was the point of the episode. They're like, they almost seem inhuman the way they descend upon him and just kind of, like, it, it, it would it imply they, like, they, they murder him, tear him to shreds. And you know, and that, All right. that's, I always got the impression of like almost like they ate him and ripped him apart. Yeah, like it's like, very like, yeah, bleak like, and dark. Yes, yeah, and like almost like zombie like, you know, the yes. way they like the way they and just that like, sound uh, that they uh, make as uh, they close yeah. in on him. Do you remember uh, that sound? Uh, yep, it's like, uh, uh. yeah, and the way he like he tries to run away and they just like, no, he's like, no, it's just it's just a completely. Yeah, they just is is it's just completely like Candy said, it's completely bleak. And um when I rewatched this episode, I kinda regretted picking it because Really? Um as, yeah, it's it's to me I mean, it encapsulates what Rod Serling did so well with this show that other, you know, people who did anthology shows, you know, didn't really quite capture or seem to miss the point and all is that Rod understood human nature most of all. Yeah. That that was his yeah. Rod understood humanity better than, you know, people who did themselves. Like, and that's why to me the Twilight Zone perseveres so much in society and it remains so relevant to this day because he understands human nature and humanity and you know the way we just tear each other apart, you know, like like James said earlier, you know. When when shit hits the fan, you know, we just, you know, we'll, we'll eat each other alive. 
you know, mm-hmm. even, even even in a society where, you know, we we outlaw things like kind of like that, you know what I'm saying, in order like for a better future, a better tomorrow, you still, you know, you you fall for anything like the chancellor, you know, he he believes he's better than this man because they del- they live in a society, but you know, when you know, you get to this point where it's like, oh, you know, I'm at moments from death. The guy you declared obsolete stands firm and he, you know, he stands fast and he's just unwavered in the face of death while you, you just fall to pieces, you know? And it, like that, that final shot of Burgess Meredith kind of moved me to tears where he just, he stands, his, he puts his head up high with a smile on his face, just like, mm-hmm, I knew it. Like, you know, and like, you know, I, I, I understand like, you know, the sometimes, you know, the belief in religion and, and God is kind of like, you know, in this day in society is kind of frowned upon, but you know, I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and that stuff. And, you know, it, it that's, I, I'm, I was moved to tears by that point and other, you know, it's just like, you know, this man's faith is undeterred while this guy is, Oh, I gotta get out of here. And it was like, damn, I gotta talk about this now. Like, no. <laughs> I put my fucking foot in my mouth by picking this episode. You know what I'm saying? Cause but you know, it's it's okay. I think it's a good thing. Yeah. Good thing. And uh, also because you know it's hard to discuss this episode without going into you know the outside world and you know society and like how it is you know and like how you know members are easily brainwashed into going against what they actually believe you know because they feel like they have a better chance at living if you know they go against you know the chancellor obviously you know he 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 puts up a good front you know in in like you know oh you know he's a member of the state but you know when the chips are down you see how he calls out Oh God, you know, he, he calls out for the Lord, you know, and it's just like, you know, it's obviously that's what you always were, and you turned your back on the Lord, and that's your, your payment for doing so, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, I mean, you, you definitely get that vibe, and um, I think it's just it's just beautifully portrayed. They're two phenomenal actors, and, yeah. you know, I think, you know, uh, sociology is kind of a, a pet hobby of mine and something I have studied quite extensively and I really like to see stuff that kind of shows human nature and yes. groups and and you know and and whereas the state is this all-powerful group it's, it's all for power yeah. but you know inside what do you really believe do you have the strength and faith in whatever to to get you through and he doesn't right like, like he gave up what he really believes inside to have power yeah totally and and they wanted to wipe out religion and religious people and you know they did or they tried to um you know uh, it makes it kind of a bleaker place yeah if i I may Uh uh-huh and again i avoid dragging the direct political stuff up here but again twilight zone bespoke its time so much and serling was so good at doing it with nuance what that episode in particular, that's McCarthyism. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. You, you, 
I mean, a lot, a lot of people see it their own way. Oh, it's about this political ideology. It's about that political ideology. But it, could, it applies it's, to other things as well. It's yeah. about what was going on then. And yeah. like with, with McCarthy. Yeah, in-group, out-group. It's totally in-group, out-group stuff. It's, it's, amazing. It's, it's fascinating to me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, at that time, you literally had like sons being forced to denounce their own father because he once read a Russian language newspaper or something. And yeah, okay, you're going to say I can't read a Russian language newspaper. How far is that from saying okay, now you can't read the Bible? And yeah, right. definitely, definitely right. has like an, an Orwellian like 1984. Yes, yes, yes. yes. Fahrenheit, uh, 451. Yeah. as well. Yeah. What yeah. you mean? A world without books is a world like I would be. I would be Burgess Meredith's character, you know, in that situation. <laughs> I can't, I can't be without my books and there's never going to be a time where books are not going to be relevant and important um, to the, the higher functions of man, mankind, you know, and, 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 you know, faith, everybody, you know, has some sort of faith in something. Um, and it doesn't have to be a religious thing, but, you know, even if it's just faith in themselves or faith in, in, you know, whatever it is they have faith in, but, you know, it does break down that you do have to, you do have to have faith in something, even if it's just yourself. Yeah. And Chandler had zero faith in anything. He had, right. He had faith in the state, but not really. And um, how'd that turn out for you? Not so great. <laughs> really. All right. But, but, but before I go, uh, I want to state that, um, you know, Serling does uh, opening narration and the closing narration. No. Um, the obsolete man's closing narration was cut by um, the station, the CBS. They 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 cut out a, a a big important portion of it, and I would like to read that, you know, you know, to close this, you know, to close myself out. Yeah, that'd be great. Okay, the chancellor, the late chancellor, was only partly correct. He was obsolete, but so was the state the entity he worshipped. Any state, entity, or ideology becomes obsolete when it stockpiles the wrong weapons, when it captures territories but not minds, when it enslaves millions but convinces nobody, when it is naked yet puts on armor and calls it faith, while in the eyes of God it has no faith at all. Any state, any entity, any ideology which fails to recognize the worth, the dignity, the rights of man, that state is obsolete. A case to be filed under M for mankind in the Twilight Zone. Beautiful. Beautiful. Yes. Yeah. Excellent. So well done. And you did a great job. Thank you. And those are my three picks. They were great picks. And thank the you. obsolete man was one that I almost picked myself. And when I said my three, uh, you know, in chat what, that I was going to do, Rob was like, oh, I was going to do that one. And I was like, I was going to do the obsolete man. So he kind of did a switcheroo. So I'm going to start off my three with that, our switcheroo one. And that would be the encounter. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. an infamous episode because it only aired once. It was not in syndication. It aired in 1964. Um, all three of my picks are from season five, the final season. Um, it aired then. And uh, it didn't get put back into syndication until 2016. Now, I had a VHS copy of it, um, so I, I'd seen it a million times. Um, but, yeah, they only aired it once until 2016. Can you imagine? Like, that's a really big fucking chunk of time. 
Yes. You know, <laughs> a long time. Almost, you know, like, whatever. It, it's, it was really long. So the encounter is so beautifully done. It's almost like a one-act play. Um, it was written by Martin M. Goldsmith. And it's just two characters in an attic. And one character is a World War II vet played by Neville Brand. Um, he plays Fenton. Um, and a neat fact about him is that he was an actual highly decorated World War II soldier. And so he's just kind of, you know, uh, living his glory days up in the attic with his war relics kind of thing. And then this uh, young gardener comes up to ask if he wants work done. And that was played by young George Takei. And he's Japanese American. Um, you know, he, yeah. Oh my. But um, <laughs> he plays Arthur, but uh, his Japanese name is Taro. Um, and, you know, so George is up there just trying to talk to this guy who's clearly an alcoholic. He just keeps willing beers. And, you know, he's just like, hey, you want to make some extra money real quick? Why don't you help me clear out this attic? And, you know, and then we'll see about you taking care of the, the, the garden and lawn or whatever. And, you know, you can see that Arthur George Takei's character is like, ah, you know, I really am busy. I've got stuff to do. You know, this is how I make my money and blah, blah, blah. Now, side note, George Takei uh, was born in L.A., but and, and he's, uh, I think, 86 now, 87. Um, but he and his family were put into internment camps. Yep. <laughs> And um, in here in the United States in 1942, and they were there until the end of World War II in 1945. So having the background of those two actors to play this this uh, this little one act plays, I, I, there's really no other way to think about it. Because uh, everything happens in this, this hot moment in this hot attic, but. So having that background, so here's, you know, they start talking and he's like, oh, you know, I don't mean anything by, you know, I'm not trying to be rude. Have a beer with me. Let's clean this attic out. And, you know, I was in the war and he's talking about World War Two and I'd kill all these Japs. And he looks at him, you know, George K and George K is kind of looking at him like, what? <laughs> like, why would you say that? Um, and he's like, oh, I don't mean anything by it. You know, just sometimes my head goes back to the war and he comes across the samurai sword. And he's like, yeah, I took this off a, you know, a dead Jap that, you know, that, you know, during the war. And I just, you know, I thought it was pretty cool. So, you know, I brought it home. Basically, he didn't say cool, but, you know, and George K is like checking it out and there's Japanese writing on it. And he's like, he's kind of like, you see him like sucked into sort of this sword. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he's starting to, you know, like get this weird look on his face. And the guy's like, are you all right? You know, Arthur and. And he's like, no, my name's Taro, and blah blah blah. You know, and and he's like, what? And he's like, oh, that I changed it. Never mind. It, it's Arthur. You're right. You know, but you can tell that he's kind of like zoning out as he's, you know, like kind of obsessed with this sword. And you know, the attic's getting really, really hot, and like tensions are starting to build between them because he starts talking about the war again, Neville Brand's character, because obviously that was his glory days. You know, because, you know, he's like, okay, he finally starts admitting his life shit, and his wife's walked out on him, and 
all this bad shit's happening to him. And he can't figure out why he's a decent guy, you know, and he served his country and he did this. And, um, you know, George K, like he, he starts talking about, you know, uh, his family in Japanese and they lived um, in Hawaii and when Pearl Harbor was bombed. And he starts telling the story about, you know, his father was trying to warn the soldiers away um, when they saw the planes and, you know, he died a hero and all this stuff. And then it's like, he's, you could see there's a sweat pouring off him and he's like, starts to run out. He's like, I got to get out of here. But somehow the attic door has become sealed. He, he can't get out. And he's like, goes to the window and he's like, you can't jump out of the window. You'll die. We're way high up. Like, you know, calm down, have a beer, you know, and George kid's like, I don't want to do this anymore. I don't like this. Um, you know, so they they have these moments. It's like ebbs and flows, and it builds back up, and and just goes through that a lot until finally they're at each other's throats. Basically, George Takei's got the sword, and he's like, "You didn't get this sword from you didn't you know a dead Japanese soldier. He surrendered, and you killed him anyway, and you took the sword." And it's like, you know, how he knows this? You know, maybe he's in touch with you know I don't know. Doesn't really explain. Maybe it's just like the the, the moments that they're in. And, you know, because they're both kind of in the war. And then, you know, George Takei is admitting that his father was a traitor. You know, he was on the Japanese side. And he's the one that signaled the planes instead of trying to warn people. You yeah. know, he was signaling, hey, drop here. And so, you know, they're both, you know, having this guilt and they're trying to kill each other, basically. And, uh, you know, he ends up, uh, the uh, Noble Brands gets killed and then George takes the sword and says "Banzai" and jumps out the window. So they both died, and then the yeah. door just magically opens. But I guess it was so controversial, and they were worried about the sensitivities, uh, you know, and and you know, sort of controversy that it would cause if it stayed in syndication that they only aired it once. And I think it's just so powerful. It is just really, you know, it's got a little bit of otherworldliness to it. But it's also very real. Um, you know, sometimes we have these prejudices and these thoughts. And, and really, like, guilt is kind of, like, the driving force here. Right. You know, Neville Brand was a murderer. And George Takei's father was a traitor. So he feels guilt for his family. You know, in Japanese, right. you know, honor and family are very important. Um, you know, so I, I really love that episode, and I'm so glad that I had just a, a copy of it on VHS because you never saw it on TV until 2016. Yeah, I've always heard about it. Belongs. it. Yeah, I, I think it belongs um, back in syndication. I mean, because it's still relevant. Yeah, absolutely. And knowing the background of these actors, that hey, Neville Brand really was a highly decorated officer in world war ii and that george takei's family japanese american were in internment camps right you know so it's kind of like it's just all that emotion they put every ounce of it into playing those roles it's fucking amazing and correct me if i'm correct me if i'm wrong but didn't the backlash come from the japanese american community um i'm not familiar with i i think uh they pulled it just in case yeah, because yeah. I thought it, I, I thought I, I remember reading about like because it portrayed a Japanese American, you know, as as having a role, whereas you know that was never proven or something like that. Um, I'm not aware of that. It could be, 
But um, what I did read about it was uh, more of a generalization. They were afraid of incensing um, sensitivities about cultures and, and the war, uh, which wasn't too far in the past at that time. Because George K is very young in this yeah. role. I mean, this is way before Star Trek. I'm, I'm reading it now, and, and Sean is, is correct. It oh, says okay. the most intense... The most intense backlash came from the Japanese-American community, which expressed outrage over the episode's inclusion of an imaginary plot by a treacherous, treacherous Japanese-American to assist the Japanese Navy in a Pearl Harbor raid. So, oh, okay. yeah, Sean is correct. Yeah. Well, I knew I had heard sense. that. It it's, I, even though I didn't watch a whole lot of Twilight Zone, I knew I've read a lot about it, and that was one of those the episodes that always it's stuck infamous. out. It's infamous. Yeah. yeah. It was hard to get your hands on it, too. Um, like I said, I, I luckily had it on VHS because they did release it on VHS when I was a kid. And I had a Twilight Zone collection. Um, I had quite a few different episodes. It was one of those, you know, 18 million VHS tapes of it. But, yeah. Um, it, it's, a sh- it's a shame, too, because it's such a testament of how good an actor uh, George Sakai is, you know. That uh, like was fucking amazing in it too. Yeah, they like, both they were, were both good. Yeah, like you know, everybody remembers George Takai from Star Trek and Mr. Sulu, and you know, you know, for obviously reasons. <coughs> William Shatner, <coughs> uh, he never really got, he never really got to showcase, you know, his acting ability, and like you know, when they, but in this episode, he really just shines amazingly. You know, he's oh, so great in this episode. And yeah. just absolutely, yeah, like, I mean, just completely blows you away. You just, yeah, you're just yeah. shaken to the core at the end of the episode. You're just like, holy fuck, my whole world is different. Yeah. It's it's beautiful in its ugliness. Yeah, yeah, that's a perfect right. way to put it. I, I think George Takai is a national treasure. I, I follow yes. him on Facebook. Oh, he's, he's, he's so, hilarious. So he, he's his smart. His family... American citizens were put into internment camps, and but he comes out of that, and he's not embittered. He just fights for equality and understanding. I, I'm sorry, I don't mean to go on, but I think George Takai is a fucking national treasure. Oh, I absolutely okay. agree. He's, uh, he's, I I agree with you. I, what I he's gone through, yeah. and what his family was put through because of prejudice and knee jerk reaction, and, and he comes out of the other side and is our Sulu. I mean, seriously, you can't. Yeah, I, I can't, and I can't not just. And and then later on, you know, coming out as gay. Um, and, I, right, another, I, just I, another yeah. layer his of husband as well. Yeah. You know, I mean, he just really breaks down all kinds of barriers. He's he's a he's a legend for so many reasons. He has so many causes, and he believes in all of them, and they are all good causes. And I just really think for for every single reason, like George Takei is just it. He, and, you know, and he also, I adore him. He also had. He also had the best burn at the William Shatner Rose. I, I remember I, I, that. I, I, I get to say to you what I wanted to say to you for 40 years. <laughs> Fuck you and the horse you rode in on. <laughs> <laughs> in that and voice, he's got the yeah, best Yeah, in his voice. George Takei voice, yes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he and William uh, Shatner famously did not get along. Yeah, yeah. Well, William Shatner famously did not get along with a lot of people. <laughs> yeah, I, I loved it at the oh, beginning of that roast when Leonard. Not even Gremlins. Him. He didn't want, He didn't roast him, but he called him on the phone. He's like, "I'm not coming there." But I just wanted to say, "Go to hell, you douche!" And then hangs up the phone. 
or some <laughs> shit like that. It was fucking funny. It was not too long before he died. It's just sad. Yeah. Anyway, I need. Um, we're running out low on time, so I'm gonna. I gotta rush through my next two. Um, and these are in no particular order. I just attacked that one first because that was where Rob and I, with obsolete man and the encounter, we were kind of interchangeable. Um, yeah. My next one I'm gonna talk about is uh, just a pure horror one, and it's a famous one. We did mention earlier, Living Doll with Talkie Tina. Um, we got yeah. Tony Sabalas in there. I don't like you. <laughs> yeah. Now, it's funny about the voice. Uh, I I don't know if anybody's as huge into animation and cartoons as I am, but June Foray actually voiced Talky Tina, and she did. Uh, she was uh, Rocky the Flying Squirrel. Uh, she was Cindy Lou Who. She was Granny on Looney Tunes. She was Witch Hazel on Looney Tunes. Um, very famous voice actress. Um. But she also, hilariously, three years prior to this, um, did the voice for the famous Chatty Cathy doll. So, Tina. I'm sorry? Yeah. Now, those were creepy. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. So creepy. But it was like a sensation for young girls in 1960 to have a Chatty Cathy doll, you know? My grandma still had one. Like, she kept dolls forever. But um, oh. I was like, what was the appeal? I was in the 80s. Like, wow, we're just, like, so much more high function now. <laughs> you're so lame but um so talkie tina like it was kind of tongue-in-cheek when when she june foray voicing chatty Cathy and then doing this evil doll talkie tina and they had the same fucking voice so uh telly savalas is fantastic in this as this absolute dick face guy yeah. um he's a prick. Yeah. Yeah, yeah he's married I, to this woman and and and, he, and she has a daughter and he, you know, she's always like, Daddy, Daddy, you can see she really wants his love and acceptance. And she gets this new doll, Talkie Tina. How much did that cost? And, you know, and he's just being a dick. And she just runs away crying. And, um, you know, the mom's just, and, and the mom, played by Mary LaRoche, like, she's just kind of disappointing. Like, she has, like, almost no reaction, same facial expression. Eric, how could you? She's yeah. so upset. Like, she's a fucking robot. But, okay, that's my, like, gripe with it. But it's, it's kind of, um, you know, where we get our Chucky, you know, stuff and all that. Correctly. It really goes back Correct to inspiration. this. Yes, it, it goes back to this. And I just love, you know, the first time she's like, my name's Talkie Tina, and I'm going to kill you. And he's convinced <laughs> at first that it's the daughter and the mom plotting against him, you know, because he, he's such an asshole to both of them. Poor little girl. And the wife is just dumb as a plank. But, okay. Anyway. So, uh, you know, he tries to, like, do all this shit to the doll. It won't cut. It won't burn. It won't. And she's just like, you're going to be very sorry. You know, this is, I can't do June Foray's voice, but, man, she's she was great. Uh, she was the, the Mel Blanc of, uh, you know, the female Mel Blanc, basically, of voice acting in cartoons and in general. But, yeah, so it ends up, you know, she does kill him. But then the mom's like, oh, my God, Eric, you know, and like for the most reaction we get out of her. And then she picks up the doll that happens to be laying next to him. And and Taki Tina's like, my name's Taki Tina and you better be nice to me. And you just see this like slow motion, her dropping it like he all that shit. He was babbling about this doll being alive was right. Yeah. And he, rid of it and he ended up, you know, she did kill him. And I, I don't know. It's just like a pure horror. It, it's not deep. It's not philosophical like most of them. I, I picked it just because it really is just a pure horror. And it went on to inspire a whole almost genre, subgenre of horror. 
uh, like puppets and dolls yeah. that are creepy and scary and you know so it was it's very inspirational and like you still feel its effects today particularly with child play yeah, yeah absolutely but i gotta hear daniel do his uh his chucky imitation though when the, the mom first realizes though he does it really well you stupid bitch! You fucking slut up! <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, you do that so great! I love it. Okay. I love that part so much. You yeah. stupid bitch! You filthy slut! Oh, <laughs> you gonna fuck with me? <laughs> it's like the best moment in the movie because you're dying, fucking Moppy. Even as a kid, when I saw that, I was like, oh my god! Yeah. <laughs> oh my god! I just, okay. I just, the, 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 the best part is just the head turn. She said, talk to me, David I'm going to throw you in the fire. And the way he just turns his head and just, like, comes alive. You stupid. That's my favorite moment right there. It's not the, the fucking <laughs> rant. You stupid just... bitch. And that Brad Dourif, who is yeah. also a treasure, oh, doing God. that voice. It's... Like, just uh, full uh, on. I, I cannot tell you how much I love fucking Brad Dourif. Oh, my God. When we talk about Exorcist 3, we, I'm going to be seeing his face. Oh, yeah. I cannot. I, I cannot <laughs> I'm chomping at the bit about it already. Yeah, um, yeah. So, I'm as we are the- running over time, I'm going to do my last one. And this goes to something that I really think is still very relevant, even more so probably than it was at the time. Um, it's number 12 looks just like you. And yeah. I like this one. It's and These are all from season five, the last season. Um, and what happens in this is that at the age of adulthood, when they hit adulthood, which our main character, Marilyn, has hit adulthood but she's kind of wishy-washy like i don't know if i want to do the change and they have all these different models like you can be number 12 and you'll look like this and they all wear like these kind of like fancy like name tags like her mom is lana and she looks you know really young and she's a um, model number 12 and you got marilyn sitting in there you know whether she's going to pick out her her model that she wants to change into you know because there's only like so many so that you know it, it ends like you know, as the mom says, it ends, like, racial tensions. It ends, you know, any kind of discrimination, um, you know, with only having, like, a select few models. And, you know, it's just something that you are basically, you have to do. But Marilyn's like, I, you know, I, I think I look okay. I'm not beautiful, but I'm not ugly. I just want to be myself. And mom's like, oh, no, you'll love it. And if it's very Stepford Wives-ish before there was a yeah. Stepford Wives. Absolutely. Um, Oh, and I love the Stepford Wives, by the way. Um, it's a neat story, which is the same theme. But, um, you know, Marilyn, um, she decides she's not going to have the change. She doesn't want to, you know, her, her best friend Val, who's going around looking, you know, they all wear these kind of like body suits, showing off their body. They're all gorgeous. And she has her little gold name tag Val on, just like her mom has Lana, because oh, there's only so many models, like I said. But her dad is, she's talking about her dad and she's like, you know, my dad has some ideas and, and he had these books and he let me read. And they're like, but books have been outlawed forever. You know, like almost like you're taking away independent thought, very streamlined, very Stepford. And she's like, my dad killed himself. And so they have her committed to uh, a psychiatric place. And they're like, you know, assuring the mom, Lana, you know, who won't go by mom, she's Lana. Um, that they're going to get her ironed out, they're going to get her number picked, and, and she's going to be fine. And the mom's, you know, just vaguely concerned. But, you know, Marin's like, I just don't want to change. I just want to be myself. I want to look the way I look, and it's not perfect, and that's okay. I w- we're all unique, and, you know, it's something I really believe in. 
But so she goes yeah. and she sees this this model um, number that sees her is his name is Sig. I think his name his name's like Sigmund Friend. Mm-hmm. But you know <laughs> he's, he's yeah. So. Uh, but he's the same model as her uncle and her dad, and um, you know he's trying to talk to her and do like this psychoanalysis on her. And then you hear kind of an, an aside conversation as she's leaving there, still with her mind made up, like, I'm not doing this change. Um, him saying, you know, well, in kind of the background, if you're paying attention to the mom, like, well, we've, we've changed how we do it now. Um, we don't have the same problems as we used to as we do some of the psychological stuff, and it kind of trails off. So you find out, you know, the dad killed himself because he did believe in the individuality. He was sorry he made the change, and that was in the early days of it. And so basically insinuating that they changed their mind as well because they have this mm-hmm. thing called instant smile that they drink and blah, 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 blah. But so they um, they drug mm-hmm. her and they eventually wheel her into a place and they had pinned uh, a model number on her. And then she comes out at the end and she's model number eight. And she's like, hi, everybody. And it's completely changed her entire mentality because she was you know tempestuous and you you know just an individual like a normal person she comes out and Val her best friend and her you know Lana her mom are there and they're like oh you're so beautiful she's like and the best part is Val I look exactly like you Mm -hmm. (laughs) and just makes you want to barf yeah (laughs) yeah you know so not only because they figured it out not only do you have to change the the you know um the look, but you have to change the mind. And so they, you got, they went in there and poked around in her brain. So, so she's just like, you know, instant separate happy, like everybody else's with a cup of instant smile. And I think now today, if like that was an option, how many people you think would be doing that? I think there would be tons because at 18, yeah. you're so fucking insecure. I mean, I'm insecure at oh, 40. Yeah. You know, and and the hot models right now would be like number thirty eight, Kim Kardashian. And um, you know, there'd be like a million oh, Kim Kardashians. No. But no, that's yeah. exactly how it would be. Yes, no, that's exactly how it is, not how it, it would be. It, they're it trying. Is. Yeah, they're trying to do that, and I'm like, oh, honey, that look, I don't know. <laughs> but uh, you know, or or what we consider beautiful. You know, and it's in in a world where there's no ugliness allowed to exist, no individuality allowed to exist, we, and and it wipes away all your insecurities. And I think for a lot of people that would be a relief. It takes away the depth of thought, you know. And I think some people, actually most people, you would be surprised how many people would be relieved of that burden. Wow, I don't have to stop trying so hard. It'll just instantly be done. And I don't have to think too hard. I can just have a cup of instant smile. And, you know, I'm going to be gorgeous. So that's what matters. You know, I'm definitely a Marilyn. You know, I want to be me. I'm not trying to look like anybody else. I'm not trying to be like anybody else. You know, it's, it's important that we are all unique. And that is the beautiful thing about people. When everybody looks the same, what happens? When everybody thinks the same, what happens? You start, you start right. to think it's going to be like this utopia, but that's not human nature. It's a fucked up world. It, it is. Mm-hmm. And so we just find another reason to hate each other. Mm-hmm. Especially as it also makes your lifespan like four times longer. Yeah. Like when Val's just like offhandedly talking about like her mother's, she's been through 20 husbands. <laughs> 
It's crazy. Yeah. So, <laughs> I don't know. So, for me, it's just, I feel like, you know, we've gone through ups and flows just since this um, episode has aired. But, you know, right now, we are extremely shallow um, as a culture, as in the, well, I mean, as people in the world. Everything is a lot more shallow. Um, you know, for me, like, if you told me, like, I'd have to die or, you know, give up my books, I'd be like, I'm just going to die. You know, yeah. if you tried to strip me of, of my thought, even when it's ugly, I would be like, you're just going to have to kill me. I can't do it. I'll take this big nose and I'll just keep on going, man. Like, I want to be different. <laughs> I want to be different. Right. I don't want to look I'll, like anybody else. I'll take this Tommy, this big old Tommy. <laughs> <laughs> but that's, you know, that's the thing about Twilight Zone that I've learned is is how relevant it is to today. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. It's timeless. Almost, with almost all of the episodes that we've talked about so far. You know, there's there's some part of it that that has some significance to what we're going through today. Absolutely. That was the beauty of Rod Serling. Yeah, yeah, he was he was, he was so brilliant. ahead of his time. Um, yeah. And really, the the big trifecta in Twilight Zone writing would be Rod Serling, Richard Matheson, Charles Beaumont. Um, there are other writers in there, but they're like the, the heavy hitters. Yeah. And I mean, just great stories. A lot of people consider it sci-fi, but I think that's more of an outer limits thing. Um, yeah. Yeah. Twilight Zone is more of it has horror and different kinds of horror, all different shades and shapes and sizes. And it's a really good intro. I mean, I was watching Twilight Zone when I was really young. It would come on before Sammy Terry, which I talked about in season one. Episode one, actually. Um, here he was a horror host here in Indiana. Um, but yeah, it would come on before that, and it was it scared me. <laughs> like a thing about machines, like used to scare the shit out of me when I was a kid. Where all, mm-hmm. all the shit came to life. When did you get out of here? That's actually one of the weaker episodes, in my opinion. But the well, I was a kid. I was like, I don't know, <laughs> four or five. No excuse. Damn it, Daniel. <laughs> well, I mean, I watch it now, and I, I have rewatched it, and I'm like, yeah, it's not scary. But when I was a kid, it was scary. But, I mean, the idea of it is still scary. Like, imagine if all of our fucking machines now came alive. We'd be fucked. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. right here to sing a song. Uh, oh, damn it. The machine is betraying him. <laughs> I love this song so much. <laughs> no, that's the only reason he came in here was to fucking play that. Yeah, just just to the fucking do that that he left. <laughs> I like that song. I don't care who knows it. No, I love that song well, too. Well, you and really Wilson Phillips, I have questions that I I probably don't want to know the answers to. <laughs> Cameron, when Cameron Wilson has Phillips been was like popular, like I, it was like the anti whatever I was doing. I was like, <laughs> oh my god, this Alima shit I've ever heard. I'm gonna go listen to Motley Crue. Yeah. Oh boy. <laughs> and I unapologetically like them, so whatever. We have our things. Speaking of individuality, but we gotta wrap this up. Um, 
it's been really, really fun. And obviously we can keep doing this. I have so much more to say, but we have to wrap it up. Yeah. We had, we had a really good combo and um, I hope that people that listen to this are inspired to go back and rewatch and see where the foundation of the horror genre is. And it's this. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and take it from somebody who wasn't really interested in it and got turned on to it. And now it's just, it's mind blowing. Yeah. It never stops being mind blowing. And that's how, what, what can you say that about? Not very many things. That no. really stood the test of time. No, not a lot. Not at all. Not even music. <laughs> That's supposed to be funny, guys. Uh, <laughs> you're gonna put uh, a, you're gonna put a lame laugh track over that. That's fine. Oh, you know it. <laughs> I got I got I got you. <laughs> I have to go return some videotapes. <laughs> Well, thank you all for a memorable evening. Yeah, it's been really fun, and you guys are yeah. so intelligent, and you have very great insights, and I really appreciate it. Let's go ahead and do uh, our plugs. Uh, Daniel, you first. As always, Nightmare Nerd, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, Instagram, uh, eat, drink, and be scary. Absolutely. Um, Rob, and Squirt. Uh, just, just Google the cinematography. <laughs> <laughs> just listen to the other episodes. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I, I plug the other. Uh, I plug my all, all my shit. So, you know, you know what it is. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. I, I'm gonna go on a rant here. It's just, <laughs> oh, no. it's, it's, it's just so, so much shit. I gotta plug. It's just like, you know, like Daniel. You know, he's simple. The uh, Sean is simple. Kenny's simple. David's simple. Cameron's simple. It's me. It's like. These are the plugs that never end. They just go <laughs> on and on. <laughs> well, uh, I can no, tell the- every time I ask you to do your plugs, you're like, <sighs> you know, you know that? <laughs> yeah. that fucking exhale every fucking, time. It's just so many fucking plugs I gotta you know do. But it's just like, I, you know what? We'll just plug the house that screams. Yeah. Hey. Um, it's on every fucking episode. <laughs> you, you, know what I, you know what I can do for you, Rob? What's that? I can edit in your plugs. So you don't ever have to plug it again. I can just edit in the same plugs every week. <laughs> edit in the same thousand plugs. Thank yeah, you. there you go. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, Dave, you got anything to plug? Yeah, if I can, I, real quickly, I want to just read the closing narration from the monsters that I do on Maple Street, which I oh, think please, is the greatest. Oh, that'd be beautiful. Yeah. 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 Real quick, yeah. real quick. There are weapons that are simply thoughts, attitude, prejudices to be found only in the minds of men. For the record, prejudices can kill, and the suspicion can destroy, and a thoughtless, frightened search for a scapegoat has a fallout all of its own for the children and the children yet unborn. To me, that's Rod Serling. That's, that, that is, if you distilled it down, that's Rod Serling. And I, that's yeah. all I wanted to say. It's and gorgeous. I, that was beautiful. And, and yeah. Just you all just be good to each other. That's all I got. Absolutely. Very good. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, Sean the Dad, what you got? Well, you got you're going to you do a Sterling over for us. Am I going to do a what? A Sterling voiceover? Uh, no, no, I'm okay. not. Okay. <laughs> um, you can you can find me at uh, Sean of the Dead on Twitter, Instagram, Slasher. 
And like David said, be good to one another. Yeah, please. Um, for me, uh, I always ask everybody for their plugs. I'm never ready when it's my turn. Um, can you final girl <laughs> on Instagram slash your network? Um, at house underscore screams on Twitter is where I'm most active, easily reached. Um, we do have a Facebook page on uh, for the house that screams as well. Uh, we take um, advice. Anybody who is interested in a certain episode or appearing on an episode, you can um, get in touch with me. And uh, yeah. Anyway, everybody, you have a spooky night. And thank you for being here for our first special episode. Thank you for having me. I, I love having you guys, and it's always fun, and it's always deep, and it's always funny. It's everything. Have a good night, guys. Have a good one. Thanks for having me. Have a nice Thanks. night, everybody.